This is the day that uh, Christians all around the world join together to focus on and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Lots of people were doing it yesterday on the other side of the globe. It's our turn to do it today. This morning we're going to learn important truths about Jesus' resurrection by looking at the death and raising of a man named Lazarus. Please take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 11. I'm going to summarize large sections of this chapter. Obviously, I couldn't teach this whole chapter in, in one message, so I, I've got to summarize most of what's going on here uh, to build a context for the verse that I want to expound and look at today. So uh, I'm going to be taking big chunks, paraphrasing and citing the verse just to kind of build context and a background for our actual verse, which will be verse 25. I think I'll go ahead and read it before we begin to walk through the historical narrative and uh, kind of tie it all together at the end. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That is our verse. Let's go ahead and get into it here. I'm going to be looking at uh, verses 1 through 16 first. In this section, the author of this gospel, the Apostle John, tells us about a man named Lazarus. He lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. Now this trio had spent quite a bit of time with Jesus. Uh, they were his close friends. Verse 5 says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. You can see it there. Now that shows that he has a relationship with them, that he interacts with them, and that he loves their friendship, their fellowship, their time together. And we're told in this section that Lazarus fell ill. He became sick. Now his sickness is not mentioned in the text. We don't know for sure what illness he had. But we know that it was very serious because it killed him. I don't know if he died a few days after contracting it or if, you know, if he fought and fought and fought and was bedridden for a season. I don't know how it played out. But whatever sickness he had, it ended up killing him. And you can take into consideration that medical advancements were not like they are today and people died from even the common flu back then. But we don't know what it was, but it was serious enough to kill him. And prior to his actual death, Mary and Martha sent an urgent request to Jesus asking that he come to Bethany at once to heal their brother. Jesus was near the Jordan River at the place where John the Baptist had been baptizing. He'd already been killed at this point. But Jesus was at that same place on the Jordan River out in the wilderness. He was out there probably proclaiming the gospel, I'm sure. That's pretty much what he did everywhere he went. You can see that that's where he was if you look back at chapter 10, verse 40. So when he's out there on the Jordan River, a messenger brings him 
this notification from Mary and Martha. Interestingly, Jesus does not immediately respond to the notification. He delays. He actually waits two days before he even tells his disciples about it and tells them that they're actually going to go to Judea, the province where Bethany is located. So he gets this urgent request, this urgent notification, doesn't really do anything about it for two days. And then he tells his disciples, guys, we're going to go to Bethany, we're going to go to Judea. And and when he said this, his disciples were very, very concerned for his safety. They were concerned for his safety. Going to Bethany was, was dangerous because it was close to Jerusalem, just a couple of miles away, where Jesus' enemies, the Jews, or religious leaders were stationed. That's where Jesus' enemies were stationed. That's where they hung out in Jerusalem in the holy city, and, and that's where they staged their attacks and plotted and schemed for how to capture and kill him. And his disciples, quite frankly, thought, wow, dude, going to Bethany is not safe at this juncture. Maybe you should rethink that. That's verses 1 through 16 boiled down. Are there more things there? Yes. But that's the basic summary of it. Verses 17 through 27. By the time Jesus and his disciples reach Bethany, Lazarus had already been dead four days. This means that his body had already been embalmed and buried. Usually embalmed and buried within 24 hours. It was a very warm climate. You did not want to have a body out in the open there. I mean, you didn't have any refrigeration or anything like that. Not a good idea. And so he was probably embalmed and buried the first day or the very next day after he passed away. The embalming process was quite different from what we do today where you kind of remove the person's blood and fill them with formaldehyde, I believe, and just kind of a weird, eerie, gross thing. And that's not at all what it was like back then. It consisted of washing the body thoroughly, rubbing it down with various spices and pricey lotions, and then wrapping it in linen cloths. Burial consisted of placing the body in a carved out section of rock or a small cave, which they called a tomb, and then sealing the opening with a stone. So the idea of digging a hole and putting a casket down there didn't exist back then. Some people groups did cremation, uh, but some others did very elaborate tombs. Think of the Egyptians, King Tut. Lazarus' body was, had been embalmed and was now in the tomb, and his funeral was in full swing. Ancient funerals lasted about a week. They had eating and drinking. They had friends and family that would come and visit and neighbors. It was just a week-long mourning period and process. At this point, friends and family were coming to Bethany to console Mary and Martha, on the loss of their beloved brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was nearby and that he was coming, she went to find him. When she found him, she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
Now this was her way of saying, and she wasn't being disrespectful or dishonoring, but it was really her way of saying, Lord, why didn't you come sooner? You could have saved my brother, Lazarus. Have you ever been through a difficult season or situation where you felt like God was either late or he didn't show up at all? You ever been through something like that? Where you've said, I don't, I don't know where God is in this deal. That's precisely what Martha was experiencing at that moment. And God, as far as she's concerned, was right on the other side of the Jordan. She believed that Jesus is God. She knows that Jesus got the message. And she was saddened by this reality that he had not come in time. She was even spinning a hypothetical scenario. She was saying to herself, if, if Jesus had done this, this would have happened. If Jesus would have done that, that would have happened. You ever done that? Where you kind of go back and look at things that happened in your life or whatever or something that you just went through and you say to yourself, well, if God had done this, this would have happened. We even say that about ourselves, right? Well, if I've done this, if I would have done that, that would have happened, right? We have a lot of regrets. We think back on our lives. I certainly do that. We all do this at times. And that's what she was doing here. And I would say that hypothetical scenarios tend to be very unhelpful, even dangerous, because they can lead to embitterment. We need to realize that things happen for a reason. Things happen in accordance with the Father's definite plan and will. Ephesians 1.11 If we have been adopted by the Father by grace through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, we can know for certain that He works all things for our good and for His glory. Romans 8.28 2 Corinthians 4.15 Stay away from hypothetical scenarios. Don't, don't spin the what-ifs. It's not helpful. I'd say read your Bible instead. Instead of spending all that time trying to process and figure out what could have been or what couldn't have been or whatever, get in the Word. And when calamity strikes, don't ask why. Ask what and who. What can I learn from this? And who can I help with the experience and wisdom that I gain from it? It's much better to ask what and who than why over and over and over. The reasons why Jesus waited until after Lazarus died to go to Bethany are actually listed in the text. This is pretty extraordinary because so often God doesn't answer those questions. God doesn't give us a rationale. He just does whatever it is that he deems to be right in accordance with his will. And he does what he does. And sometimes we don't get the answers. But in this text, there are, there's rationale here for why he delayed. Why he allowed Lazarus to pass away. I see five here. Number one, to prove that He is the resurrection and the life. Verse 25a. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. 
And, and this would be the main thrust of John 11. It is to allow Lazarus to pass away and be dead for a while so that Jesus can raise him from the dead and thus prove that he is the resurrection and the life. There's the purpose. That's the primary. Actually, I don't even think that's the primary. I think the primary is number two. To glorify the Father and the Son, verse 4. It is for the glory of God. This is Jesus speaking. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. You see, Jesus would receive glory. The Father would receive glory for performing this miracle and doing the absolute impossible. In fact, I think this is probably the biggest miracle Jesus had done up to this point, raising a dead person. He did a lot of things, fed a lot of people, walked on water. The, the, the overarching purpose of this miracle and every miracle and everything that exists is to bring the Father glory and to bring the Son glory. And we see that here. Number three, to build the faith of His disciples. Verses 14 and 15, Jesus says this to his disciples, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. In other words, if I'd been there, I probably, he probably wouldn't have died. I would have saved him, and you wouldn't have seen me raise him to life, which would not have helped your faith, your belief. Number four, to evangelize and convert Jews. All the way down in verse 45. This is after he raises Lazarus. It says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, what? Believed in him. Believed in him. In that moment, Jesus proved who he said he was. I am the resurrection and the life. He raises a dead person to life, thus proving who he is. And Jews that are there are saying, whoa, this guy's telling the truth. Many of them believe. Not all, but many. Number five, and you will not find this one in the text. It has to do with a historical account. It is to dispel a myth. To dispel a myth. You see, the people lived in Jesus' day, those who lived in Jesus' day, they actually believed this. They actually believed that, that the soul hovered over a dead body for three days and could possibly re-enter the person and thus bring them back to life. They actually believed that when you died, your soul kind of hung out above your corpse haven't we seen this in movies when somebody dies on the operating table? Next thing you know, they're standing up here watching the surgeons do their work. That kind of weird thing we've seen in movies. They believe that weird thing we see in movies. Three days, up to three days. After the third day transpired, soul goes away. It goes down into Hades or it goes into paradise. Abraham's bosom, it says. Jesus waited four days to raise Lazarus. He doesn't raise him during that superstitious period. He raises him after to thus prove that he alone can raise the dead. 
Think about that. Those are five reasons why he waited. Martha was perplexed by Jesus' delay, no doubt. But she still had faith. She believed that he could do something about this situation. She did. She tells him that she knows that if he prays to the Father and, and basically asks for a miracle, it will be provided. And how does Jesus respond to her? He says, your brother will rise again. This is what she wanted to hear. But she thinks that he was speaking about the resurrection that will occur on the last day. This is the resurrection that Jews believe in. They do believe in resurrection, and, and they're focused on this last day resurrection. And she's thinking, of course, Jesus, he'll rise from the dead. That's when it'll happen, on the last day. And now we've come to our main verse. Jesus looks at Martha and says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. What did Jesus mean by this statement? Well, he was not referring primarily to what Martha had envisioned when he said that Lazarus would rise the last day in resurrection. That's, he had that in mind, but that's not exactly what he was focused on here as he said this to her. Jesus was referring to a, a twofold reality. A twofold reality. First, and this is precisely what he means, there is no resurrection outside of Jesus himself. When he says, I am the resurrection, he is essentially saying, there is no resurrection outside of me. Jesus is the resurrection. All people will be raised by and through Jesus. He is the resurrection of all, some to eternal life, some to eternal death. In fact, His own resurrection, which is what we celebrate today, His own resurrection guarantees that He will one day raise and judge the world with justice. Acts 17, 31, John 5, 22. So the first fold is that, that there is no resurrection outside of Jesus. He's it. He is the resurrection. That's what he means. Second, there is no life or eternal life outside of Jesus himself. I am the resurrection. It all comes through me and I am the life, the only one who can grant and give and grace eternal life. That's what he's saying. So we must understand, Jesus is not one option for life. Jesus is not one way to life. Jesus is not one of many paths to life. Jesus is the life. In John 14, 6, Jesus puts it like this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4.12 says, 
There is salvation in no one else, exclamation point. God has given no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. What name? The name of Jesus. Jesus is the life. Jesus is the resurrection in that all will be raised by Him and through Him, some to eternal life, some to eternal death, judgment. And He is the life in that He is the only source and person who can grant and give eternal life. That is what Jesus is saying. Jesus also tells Martha that if a person believes in Him, He says, believes in Me, speaking of Himself, though He die, yet shall He live. Here, Jesus points to the fact that the physical bodies of believers will not remain in the grave in a tomb forever. Even though the, the Christian dies physically, their physical body, which is a skeleton later on, not long after they die, it will not remain skeletonized in the tomb. That's what he's saying. I love how J.C. Ryle put it. He says, He who believes in Jesus, even if he or she has died and been laid in the grave, shall yet live and be raised again through Jesus' power. Faith in Jesus unites the believer to the fountain of all life, and death can only hold us for a short time. As surely as Jesus, the head, has life and cannot be kept a prisoner by the grave, so surely all of his members, believing in him, shall live also. I mean, let's just be real. When, when we celebrate Easter, sure, we're celebrating the fact that he rose, but we're really celebrating the fact that we will rise. Are we not? Praise God. In verse 26... Jesus tells Martha that, that everyone who believes in Him shall never die. Well, that's an interesting phrase. Here, Jesus points to the fact that the spiritual body of a believer, the soul, will never die. Even though we die physically and our body goes in the grave, in a tomb, in a casket, whatever, our soul does not taste death. When a believer dies physically, their soul does what? It immediately goes to be in the presence of Jesus, right? You remember that famous verse, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.8. When you die, your body goes in a casket into a, into the, into a grave or, or something like that, maybe in a tomb, I don't know, where you're going to be buried. Maybe you've got a plot picked out. It's got a nice view in the background. doesn't really matter. Maybe for those who come visit you, you can say, what a pretty mountain. Your body goes down, but your soul goes up. A believer's soul never experiences death, never tastes death. Death is so foreign to it, it's like a language the soul cannot speak. It never, your soul will never experience darkness. It'll never lose consciousness, alertness. There is no such thing as soul sleep. Instead, the soul remains completely alert when it goes from body into the presence of Christ in paradise. Luke chapter 23, verse 43. 
And when the soul reaches its glorious destination, let me tell you what it experiences. It experiences liberation from sin. 2 Corinthians 5.1 That should be a great comfort to you. Knowing that in the presence of Jesus, you will not wrestle with or battle or engage in sin any longer. When the soul reaches its glorious destination, it experiences the fullness of God's presence and glory. 1 Corinthians 13, 12a. It experiences perfect knowledge of the Savior, right? You no longer have to live by faith. Now you can live by sight. 1 Corinthians 13, 12b. It experiences eternal rest. Revelation 14, 13. It experiences everlasting, perpetual, never disturbed joy. Psalm 16, 11. And it experiences unimaginable blessings. 1 Corinthians 2, 9. That's what awaits your soul. If you're in Christ, the body goes down, the soul goes up. Verses 28 through 37. To prove that he is indeed the resurrection and the life, and that believers will be raised by him to eternal life, Jesus headed for the tomb to raise Lazarus from the dead. And right then, Martha runs home to get Mary. She's got to go get her sister. And when she got to the house, Mary was there being consoled by some Jews and people that were there just trying to be a blessing to her as she's mourning the loss of her awesome brother because this guy was a great guy. She's heartbroken. There's people there ministering to her, and it happened all week long. Martha runs in, and she's got to pull her aside quietly doesn't want to really disturb that moment or throw these people off. But she pulls Mary aside and she tells Mary, the teacher, capital T, wants to see you. And I'll tell you, these girls left in haste, flew right out the door. People who were there were going, what happened? Since they were consoling Mary, they thought maybe the two girls are going back over to the tomb to mourn some more over there. So we'll follow along and maybe we can support them over there. So these two girls take off running, and I don't know who these people were, but they take off running, and they're trailing. They're all headed to Lazarus' tomb. When Martha and Mary caught up to Jesus, Mary falls at his feet and begins to weep. She says the exact same thing as her sister, verbatim. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her crying, and the Jews who had come with her also crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled, it says. He said, where have you laid him? Where did you bury him? Where did you bury my friend? And the girls replied, Lord, come and see. We'll show you. In verse 35, we see the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Verses 38 through 44. When Jesus reached Lazarus' tomb, a cave with a stone covering the opening, he called for the stone to be removed. Take that stone away. But Martha... <laughs> 
experiences short-term memory loss about the power of Jesus and proceeds to caution him about what will occur if the stone is rolled away. Probably not a good idea, Lord. By this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. The King James puts it like this, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. He stinketh. That's funny. But Jesus didn't think her memory loss or lack of faith was funny. He gently corrects her. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Did I not tell you what I was going to do? That you would see God's glory on display in and through me? So he didn't think it was funny. Now, some of the men who were there grabbed a hold of that stone and they rolled it away from its opening, just kind of moved it. I don't know if it was round. We always see in the movies and everything, it's this big, perfectly round stone like a big tire. I don't think that's what it looked like. It was just big enough to cover the opening. And they grabbed a hold of this sucker and rolled it out of the way. Now, it doesn't say, but I suspect that the fumes of death, the smell of decomposition, began to seep out and, and permeate the air. Lazarus had been dead four days. Guarantee, he stinketh. Have you ever smelled a rotting animal carcass? It's an odor that gets embedded in your memory, doesn't it? Now, this is a human being. But that is a, the, the smell of decomposition, of decay, is, is a smell that you do not soon forget. Maybe you never forget it once you've smelled it. Sometimes we'll get a whiff of something really nasty like that while we're driving, and we'll say, ooh, that smells like a dead animal. You remember the uh, Modesto Tallow Company? Remember that place on Crow's Landing? You remember the smell that came out of that place? Lord have mercy. It stinketh bad. I told a story years ago at junior high. I actually, I just was like, I drove by there all the time. I, don't ask me why. I would just be on, on Crow's Landing. I'd drive by there, and, and, you know, you could smell it way before you get close to the place. But once you get to the epicenter, it's like super stinketh. And I thought, I'm going to drive back there to see what that is. Big mistake. Huge. I just kind of drove back there to investigate to see what was creating such stench, and I'm not going to tell you exactly what I saw because it was just absolutely repulsive, but it did look like a scene out of a horror film. Has anyone here ever worked there? Your dad worked there. Did your dad come home and stinketh? He, came, he drove a tallow truck? Oh, that poor guy. He probably went nose blind though, right? I think it smells good. What I saw was, was detestable. And, and, of course, the closer you get to the back, the smell just intensifies. And, and you know, I was, uh, I was about ready to blow chow. It was unreal. It was so disgusting that I actually became a vegetarian for like six minutes until I got out of range. Then I went and had a French dip. I came to my senses. It was just nasty. It was horrible. It was a terrible, terrible smell that came out of that place. And what you were smelling when it was an operation was decomposition. That's the smell. 
we've smelled it, and it's not a smell that you soon forget. And, and I, I, I know it's conjecture, but I suspect that that odor started to come out. And Jesus is unfazed by what's happening. The stone is rolled away. And what does he do? He begins to pray. He thanked the Father for hearing his request. He thanked the Father for granting his request so that those present would see and believe that he is the resurrection and the life, that he is the Savior of the world. And when he finished praying, when he closed his prayer, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! Now his words were packed with restorative power. In the blink of an eye, all of Lazarus' bodily systems were fully restored to their normal function. His nervous system, you know, his brain, spinal cord, nerves, sensory organs, all of that. His circulatory system, his respiratory system, his endocrine system, his musculoskeletal system, his integumentary system, I had to practice these words, his digestive system, right, mouth, salivary glands, esophagus, his immune system, his urogenital system, reproductive, all of his systems in a flash are fully restored. He goes from being a corpse to being fully alive. This was not progressive restoration. There was no healing process involved. It was instantaneous. Lazarus went from full decomposition, right? Rigor mortis, the whole works. His body is deteriorating. It's falling apart. He goes from that mode to full restoration, total restoration, in the time it took Jesus to say, Lazarus, come out. Three words from total death to total life. It's just incredible. And what happened next must have literally shocked those who were standing there. They're seeing this play out. They can smell death. The doubters were there. Oh, what is he doing? This is ridiculous. If you read down further in the story, you'll see him. He just yelled at a corpse. It stinks. What could possibly happen? Verse 44. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Lazarus comes walking out of the tomb all wrapped up like a mummy. Just think about it. It must have terrified people, not the whole mummy thing, but the fact that the guy who'd been dead for four days who stinketh no longer stinketh. He's alive. He's standing there. He's all wrapped up. How did he even see to get out of the thing? What a sight this must have been. I bet you the air became filled with oohs and ahs and, and statements of, it can't be. He comes right out. And Jesus then commands, unbind him and let him go. Turn him loose. Get those cloths off of him. And begin to peel them away. And there he is standing there. Perfect color. 
perfect restoration, just as he was before he got sick. Through this incredible miracle, Jesus proves that he is the resurrection and the life. He proves that whoever believes in him shall experience resurrection unto eternal life. That's the whole point. Closing. The raising of Lazarus, it also has prophetic implications, future implications. It, it actually foreshadows a future event. When Jesus returns to, to destroy His enemies and establish His kingdom and throne, those who died in Him shall be raised from the grave. But they will not experience restoration like Lazarus did here. What happened with Lazarus was more like a resuscitation. He was brought back to life. He was brought back to his original state. And guess what? He eventually died again. And now his body is once again in a tomb awaiting the return of Christ. The the raising that we will experience, it's, it's just so far beyond a restoration as we're in the grave and when Jesus comes back. It's not a restoration that the dead in Christ shall experience. It is resurrection. There's a difference between restoration or resuscitation and resurrection. Resurrection means that those who died in Christ shall receive new Glorious bodies that are perfected and fashioned for eternal worship. Special abilities to be used in the glorious kingdom of Christ. You don't get the old body back, you get a fully new one. you got to be happy about that, especially if you've wrestled with any illnesses. Josh has had the flu for like a couple of weeks, he's ready. And that's just a flu. We get new bodies. Here's how it plays out, and this is just extraordinary. When Jesus returns, He will give the, what's called the cry of command. An archangel will speak at that moment, and the trumpet of God will sound like a battle tone. And the bodies of the dead in Christ shall burst forth from the grave, be made new, resurrected and be rejoined with their souls, with Christ, in the clouds. You see, that's where the body and the soul reunite. A perfected body, a perfected spirit, a perfected soul, bam, back together. And those who are physically alive in Christ at that time, right? Because He could come at any moment. And some of us might still be alive and, and kicking and believing in Him. Those who are physically alive in Christ at that time will also be given resurrection bodies and brought up into the clouds and joined with the Lord and with the others who were just resurrected. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. Now what happens next is up for debate. Christ may take believers away to paradise while God unleashes His wrath upon the earth for seven years, that's premillennialism. That's one eschatology. 
Christ may take believers down to the earth with him while he destroys his enemies and sets up his kingdom. That's amillennialism. Could be either one. There are other eschatological views that make some pretty good points. But here's the deal. Either way, it's going to be totally incredible for believers. I say don't spend a whole lot of time trying to nail down one of those views. Just know that if you're in Christ, you got it made. And know that He is coming back. And know that you ought to live your life in such a way that honors Him knowing that He's coming back. That if He were to return tomorrow, He would find you serving His purposes and bringing Him glory rather than serving your flesh. So what happens next is up for debate. My question to you is, where will your soul go when you die? If you're a believer, it will go into the presence of Christ. If you're an unbeliever and you continue to reject Jesus and His finished work unto death, like you actually die in that rebellion, your soul is going down into Hades to be tormented. And one day these bodies of ours will be resurrected by Christ and rejoined with our souls. We will be made whole again, body and soul. If you're a believer, you will experience resurrection unto eternal life in the glorious kingdom of Christ and eternal kingdom of God. If you're an unbeliever, you will experience resurrection unto death. Be brought before the judgment seat of God one day. Receive your sentence and be cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 20:15. The lake of fire is not a lake that consumes. It's a lake that somehow sustains the whole person in a state of burning, endless thirst and torment. It's a destruction that never ends. We so trivialized hell today. In our culture, people laugh and scoff at it. You have not yet believed in Jesus Christ. If you have not yet trusted in Him and in His finished work for your salvation, do it now. Today is the day of salvation. Believe that Jesus died for your sins. Believe that He was buried in a tomb to settle your account. And believe that He rose from the grave, right? Easter... Three days later, victorious over sin, Satan, death, and hell for your justification. If you believe in Him, your soul will be safe, your body will be resurrected unto eternal life in the future, and you will experience transformation in the here and now. This isn't just about the future. It's about now. You put your faith in Christ and you will become a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 You will become, this has got to be the greatest miracle, you will become like Christ. You will be conformed to His image. You won't be made a God, but you will be like Him in His character. Romans 8.29 You will become more and more like Christ. Christ, your Savior, which is what Christians want. I don't want to be Phil. Sometimes I hate Phil. I want to be like Christ. My wife just said 
to somebody sitting behind her. So do I. I hate Phil sometimes too. I caught her. I can see her out of the peripheral. I see what she's doing. I can see her. I'm looking right at Josh, but I see her. You will become like Christ. You will be conformed to his image. And you will. You will walk in the good works God prepared beforehand for you. Ephesians 2.10. You know, the, the life of sin just becomes unappealing. And, and what you want to do is, is walk in the good works that God calls us to walk in. Prescribed for us. Loving others, caring for others, preaching the gospel, honoring Him in every area of your life. And, and, and you know, when you find that you're not doing that, you, you, you kind of repent of that and confess it, and you begin to work on that. Then you tackle another thing. It's just, it's the Christian life. It's better to be fighting sin as a Christian than to be living in it as an unbeliever. You will become a new creation. You will become like Christ. You will walk in the good works God prepared for you. Now, there are two sacraments in the Bible. Both illustrate the work of Christ, communion and baptism. Communion illustrates the bloody death and sacrifice of Christ. When a believer participates in communion, they communicate to those around them that they are trusting in Christ's death and bloody sacrifice for their sins. Baptism illustrates the burial and resurrection of Christ. When a believer participates in baptism, they communicate that they have died to self, to their old self, that they have been spiritually buried and raised by and in Christ. That's what those two things represent. And by God's grace, we have someone here today that wants to be baptized. Through his baptism, it's Daryl. Where's my brother at? There he is. He's in the back. (laughs) Through Daryl's baptism, there will be an illustration there of the burial and resurrection of Christ. He will be at the same time testifying to the idea of dying to self, being spiritually buried, and spiritually raised by Christ and in Christ. And we're going to do that in just a few moments. Right now, I'd like to invite the worship team to come forward. They're going to lead you guys in a song while uh, Daryl and I uh, get ready. And I'll be back with you in just a few moments.